0: What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Renewable Energy SmartPod. I'm your host, Sean McMahon, and coming up on today's episode, we're going to spend some time talking about the blue economy. That's right, the blue economy. Jason Bush is the Executive Director of the Pacific Ocean Energy Trust, and he'll join me to talk about the many ways the ocean can be used to power a more sustainable future. Now, offshore wind has certainly been in the headlines as of late, so Jason and I will cover that topic but he's also going to provide an update on other blue technologies, technologies like wave energy, tidal energy, as well as other ocean-based climate solutions that can help boost the role the ocean already plays in reducing carbon in our atmosphere. And finally, we'll take a peek at the agenda for ocean energy week. It's a big event that Jason and the team at poet are helping host next week in Portland, Oregon. If you haven't already listened to the last two episodes of this podcast, I urge you to give them a listen to learn a ton about the impact the Inflation Reduction Act will have on the transition to renewables in the United States. Lauren Collins from Benson & Elkins looked at things from a tax incentives perspective, while Joseph Tripke and Daniel Cruz from Liam Research gave us their view on how the IRA will shape the buildout of individual renewable energy sectors. Those were two great episodes, so check them out when you can. Looking ahead, we've got some exciting shows on the way. In particular we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the latest in battery technology and battery energy storage systems. So lots of great insights are coming your way. But before we kick things off with Jason Bush from the Pacific Ocean Energy Trust, here's a quick word from our sponsor, ABS Quality Evaluations.
1: It's time to get serious about sustainability. Assurance services from ABS Quality Evaluations provide your customers and stakeholders confidence in the high standards of your operations. With over 30 years of experience, we can guide your sustainability journey with key ISO certifications for environmental, health and safety, energy management, responsible care, and more. Our globally accredited quality and risk experts can assist you in reducing your carbon footprint, becoming energy efficient, and saving overhead costs. Go to www.abs-qe.com or Click on the link in today's show notes to get started today.
0: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for today's episode. I'm pleased to be joined by my guest, Jason Bush. Jason is the executive director of the Pacific Ocean Energy Trust. Jason, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing pretty well.
0: Thanks, Sean. I'm excited to bring you on here. I think a lot of our listeners are going to want to learn more about what you and your organization do. So walk me through it. What is the Pacific Ocean Energy Trust, or POET, what is your organization all about?
2: Sure. Well, uh, Sean POET is a 501c3 nonprofit with a mission to promote ocean-based climate solutions. We grew out of an earlier organization called OWET, Oregon Wave Energy Trust, and we started back in 2007. I came on as the executive director in 2009. And I've been here ever since. So for the last, uh, you know, 13 years, I've had this sort of unique opportunity to engage in marine energy and uh, had the opportunity to watch the development of technologies such as wave energy, tidal energy, uh, ocean currents. Eventually, our organization, which was originally state funded, transitioned to a standalone 501C3, um, no longer state, state funded. And we expanded our, our scope to include... Other topics that are uh, relevant in what we call blue economy, uh, including, of course, offshore wind and then other technologies that might be relevant to reduce carbon from the atmosphere, uh, such as uh, marine CDR or marine carbon dioxide removal technologies, uh, ocean observation technologies, uh, aquaculture, et cetera. But the vast majority of our work is on the marine hydrokinetic side, marine energy and offshore wind. So, yeah, that's uh, that's where we are today as as a nonprofit.
0: All right. And then what are some of the latest trends or you know exciting initiatives you're seeing in, in some of those individual spaces?
2: Well, let's, uh, let's sort of break down the middle and talk about marine renewable energy, uh, wave, tidal, ocean currents, and then we'll talk about offshore wind. So marine technologies such as wave energy machines, tidal machines are still largely pre-commercial. There are the very first tidal projects are going in the water around the world I think that technology is a little bit more advanced in the wave energy in general. It's based upon a uh, sort of tried and true three bladed turbine that, you know, something we've been, been developing or, or building for, for many years. Uh, that's not the only way to do tidal, but that's an example of why that technology is uh, moving and perhaps more quickly than, say, wave energy. But around the world, you now have what are essentially full scale machines that can produce clean energy from from the ocean. Pretty exciting to see that sector come together because the potential is enormous. So uh, here in the United States over the last few years, what we've seen is a bit of a transition that uh, was spurred by the publication of a document called Powering the Blue Economy, which the Department of Energy's Water Power Technologies Office funded and was uh, largely drafted by National Labs, Pacific Northwest National Labs and NREL, National Renewable Energy Laboratory. And that identified this uh, array of other sectors that are not necessarily utility-scale energy-related, but that can nevertheless use these technologies today or soon. And that's some, as I mentioned earlier, the blue economy has become very relevant recently. We talk about aquaculture or powering machines that are deployed in the ocean for ocean observation purposes, but instead of putting a battery in there and having to go out and retrieve the thing and, and or even let it uh, you know sink to the bottom of the ocean at the end of its useful life, it can come back to a docking station that's powered by a wave energy machine or a tidal device, for example. So these are very promising new, new things for the future. Clearly, the Department of Defense uh, sort of strategic purposes are, are, are interesting. And that's driven a lot of interest in the blue economy over the last few years. And we're seeing that manifested In um, a program we call TEAMER. It's a uh, DOE funded program that Poet uh, administers. And it's a research and development program that allows us to get a number of companies funded to go into research facilities around the country and develop or continue to develop uh, specific aspects of their machine without having to. Uh, go through the traditional doe process of a FOA funding opportunity announcement which from beginning to end is this enormous uh, multi-layered uh, you know years in process so now we can get out say 15 20 small contracts every cycle which happens every three months and so we're seeing a lot of evidence there in the blue economy clearly companies are responding and I think it's an exciting uh, future for the marine hydrokinetic sector and I think it also, represents an important stepping stone as these companies build machines that are operating in the ocean environment and they're gaining experience. They're starting to develop cash flow and they're going to learn from this and, and scale up these technologies so that eventually they will grow into being a uh, viable full-scale energy, you know, utility scale energy machines. Uh, so that's the marine hydrokinetic side of the house.
0: You want to shift to offshore wind? Yeah, sure. What are you guys all working on in that space?
2: Well, there's a lot going on there, uh, and it's on the on the west coast. It's relatively new. Clearly, uh, you, you know your listeners will probably be familiar with what's happening on the east coast. A lot happening with the bottom-mounted offshore wind on the east coast, as as in Europe, where there's already about six thousand turbines that have been deployed, and they're you know twenty years into that effort. The United States is catching up quickly um, on, on the east coast, as uh, indicated by the I don't know 30, 32 separate projects that are in some stage of development there Uh, but on the west coast we have a steep bathymetry and so bottom-mounted technologies aren't going to work for us and that's why we're looking at floating technologies and that gives us the ability to put extremely the the largest wind turbines which are now pushing 15 megawatts uh, onto floating platforms or other floating mechanisms and put these machines out uh, in, in distances that help eliminate some of the conflicts of certainly around viewshed and the nearshore ocean and env- coastal environment. Uh, in Oregon, for example, we're looking at um, deployment of, of floating technology, floating wind technologies out uh, 20 miles and beyond. Uh, and that, um, that's pretty exciting. The wind resource is enormous. It's a high quality resource. And the machines are continuing to get bigger and bigger, and that's uh, that's a good thing. They, they uh, their performance goes up, the cut in speed goes down, the cut out speed goes up, and that allows the overall efficiency of the machine, so so called capacity factor of the machine, to continue to to go up. And we're seeing, or expecting to see, capacity factors in the fifty to sixty percent range here on the West Coast, especially in the uh, area there in Northern California and Southern Oregon. And this makes it a very viable promising and valuable energy resource uh, here on the West coast where we are in need of, well, let's just say a lot of new generation over the next couple of decades.
0: You don't say, you don't say, it seems like we got, you know, grid concerns up and down the coast right about now. So I want to circle back to you talking about the you know, the wave and, and tidal stuff. And it seems like there's some testing facilities. There's one off the coast of Oregon here, uh Pac wave. Walk me through what those are and kind of how that helps kind of spur all these, you know, smaller entities can kind of get their technologies going rather than going out there on their own.
2: Sure. Well, you mentioned PacWave, and uh, PacWave is a testing site, a pre-permitted testing site located off Newport, Oregon, about five, six miles offshore. And PacWave will be the nation's first grid-connected open ocean testing site. In other words, subject to the full brunt of the Pacific Ocean. There is already a, a wonderful facility down in Hawaii called WETS, Wave Energy Testing Site, but it's uh you know it's it's a much milder climate down there, and it's a great place for companies to deploy uh, their machines in the early days. Uh, but ultimately, you have to subject it to the real thing, and that's what PacWave... Wait, wait, are you
0: suggesting that the climate in Hawaii is better than Oregon? Does? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Certainly, certain times of the year, yes, indeed, indeed. But uh, so, so PackWave is very promising. We're going to have four cables that will be going out to this site. Uh, actually, five, but four are going to be five megawatts each. So you have 20 megawatts of capacity. So you can have four different types of machines out there. And at each berth, you can have an array of machines for a total of 20 megawatts coming uh, to shore. And this is a very promising facility that has been many years in in development. It's owned and and operated by Oregon State University uh, with a great deal of uh, support from the, the Department of Energy and from the Water Power Technologies Office in particular, has made that facility possible. And um, I know they've made a lot of progress on that in the last few years. Uh, I think they're at the point now of starting to uh, procure cables to actually connect everything, and the the, the conduits have been installed. And uh, this will be a great opportunity to see modern wave energy machines that will be able to get in there without going through a a normal permitting process because that's already been done. It's a multi-year, six, seven-year process. And that opens the door to let the companies focus on just getting the machines built and deployed and operated, and we've already dealt with that permitting aspect. So very promising. We'd love to see that uh, come online here in the next couple of years. And uh, uh, hopefully, in fact, I know there are already uh, uh, some DOE FOAs or funding opportunity announcements that have been made available to companies to build and deploy at PacWave. So clearly they're kind of building up a pipeline of projects or, or technologies that will be able to deploy and take advantage of PacWave when it's up and running in, say, late 2023 or 2024.
0: We'll be right back.
1: Get serious about sustainability. Assurance services from ABS Quality Evaluations can guide you with ISO certifications for environmental health and safety, energy management, and more. Our globally accredited experts can help you become energy efficient and save overhead costs. Go to www.abs-qe.com or click on the link in the show notes to learn more.
0: And now back to my conversation with Jason Bush, the executive director from the Pacific Ocean Energy Trust. All right. And then you mentioned earlier offshore wind. You know, obviously the Biden administration's been pretty active and, in, in, uh, you know, trying to build out that source. I think the goal is to have, you know, 30 gigs by 2030. How do you see that taking shape? Do you think we're going to get there? How many gigawatts do you think we're going to have off the West Coast? You know, what's your overall take on that?
2: Well, I would have to say that my confidence level has gone up several notches over here in the last few months. I'm on the board of Offshore Wind California, OWC. Uh, so i'm'm I'm active in California and a lovely vantage point there to watch that uh, state tackle this opportunity and the challenges that are associated with it and I'm pleased to say that California I think has even exceeded our expectations recently adopting some numbers that indicate that the state is taking this very seriously and is looking at the sort of the higher scale of development so for example the CEC California Energy Commission selected five gigawatts, up to five gigawatts by 2030, and 25 gigawatts by 2045 as planning goals for the state. And now that puts all the state agencies and, and, and some relevant participants on a pathway of trying to find ocean space to accommodate this level of development, which is you know no small challenge to say the least. And of course, there are a host of other uh, important challenges around uh, transmission, maybe first and foremost. Establishing a stable market there, ensuring that there is in fact support uh, or demand for this this resource, and supply chain, and build up the port infrastructure, uh, workforce development. So you know some good problems to have, but some serious challenges that will take several years to play out. And certainly, there's some element of build it, and they will come. I think. The private sector is, can be very good when they see that opportunity and you reduce the risk and increase decrease the, the uncertainty of, of the uh, the market in California. I think you'll see the companies investing in the kind of infrastructure that will uh, make this sector viable. I should mention that uh, in California, we expect to have leases uh, announced or auctions for those leases uh, in the next few months before the end of this year. And that, that is the expectation. BOEM, Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, has made this clear. And uh, that's very exciting because that's when it gets very real. Companies will compete and win these leases. And, of course, that really uh, starts the clock on this because then they get into the five, seven-year process of permitting those projects and uh, ultimately getting them built. So no steel in the water before you know 2030, give or take. Um, but clearly, uh, as we saw on the East Coast, uh, once those processes start, there's generally a pretty high level of certainty that uh, – all due effort will be made to make it happen. Of course, there will be there will be lawsuits, sort of factor that into our timing and, and thinking about this, um, especially as the first projects on the West Coast, uh, just as we saw on the East Coast. So shifting up to Oregon, where I live, the process is about a year behind California. We have identified what we call call areas. These are the initial areas that uh, BOEM has identified as being uh, best for offshore wind, uh, reflecting a number of different factors, including the quality of the wind resource, the sort of general viability of development in that area, shoreside resources, and of course, avoiding impacts on the ocean and and ocean users as as best as possible. So we have um, a couple of areas in Oregon, one off of Coos Bay, one off of Brookings, right on the border with California, and the call for information and nominations closed here about a month or so ago. And over the next few months, Boehm will process those comments and they'll come back with what they consider to be the uh, final, uh, final areas. They'll start calling them wind energy areas at that point, W.E.A.s. And those W.E.A.s will then be subdivided into auction blocks. And uh, those will be configured as to maximize uh, production, you know, promote um, safety and, Mariners and transit routes and voiding impacts, all the various important elements to, to designing one of these facilities. And we hope to see leases for, uh, for Oregon in late 2023 or maybe uh, in
0: early 2024. All righty. And then what's it looking like for Washington?
2: Well, Washington is, uh, is just now starting to dive in on, on offshore wind. There was a, uh, what's called an unsolicited proposal. That simply means that a company has proposed a project before Boehm has gotten through its planning process. And that's uh, off Gray's Harbor. That has triggered the state of Washington's um, consideration of this opportunity, if you like. And the wind resource in Washington is um, still good; it's still commercially viable. It's just not as good as that area in northern California, southern Oregon, that we sort of collectively call the "Del North" area. That's where you have, you know, pushing eleven meters per second wind resource. This is where. You just get the highest possible wind, you know, wind quality uh, project. And, and, of course, that's where uh, the, the economics of the project make the most sense, especially early in the process here. Meanwhile, Washington, you know, they've got uh, adequate wind resource. And having participated in uh, some ongoing conversations up there, and in how that state wants to engage, it's clear they're they're being very proactive about it. They've already convened a group of state leadership to talk about how the state wants to move forward with offshore wind. And I can tell you for sure they're definitely looking at the supply chain component of this. Port of Seattle uh, clearly interested in the sector, and I think that even though it is you know fair distance from maybe the heart of the wind resource there on the Northern California Southern Oregon border the port has significant infrastructure capabilities in a way that we don't have in, in Oregon or even in California where we're looking at far smaller ports uh, like Humboldt and Coos Bay that will need to gear up in a big way to be able to support this sector and I think uh, you know Port of Seattle is, is
0: eyeing that opportunity and, and rightly so okay I' want to follow up on one thing real quick so you mentioned earlier the you know ocean-based carbon, Resolution technology. So, what are those? What are those? How do
2: those work? (laughs) There's a suite of ways that we can pull carbon out of the air. Some of those technologies are just simply a form of a scrubber. It uses a chemical reaction to to pull carbon directly out of the air. You can do that. Of course, it has to be powered, and it would have to be powered from a renewable resource. Partner that uh, technology with wave energy or offshore wind. And then there are a number of, call them biological processes, that can be used to sequester carbon. And, you know, some of these are as straightforward as uh, seeding the ocean with more uh, seagrass. Amazingly simple, yet highly effective means to capture carbon and pull it out of the ocean environment. So, you know, we see an obvious opportunity there. We're just focused on the, the technology side, but... Uh, at the end of the day, it may not be a, a technological solution. It may be uh, smarter approaches to basically you know, the, the marine-based form of reforestation, which is another area of carbon sequestration that's equally as important and happening on the terrestrial front. But it's an emerging uh, sector of technologies that are not yet commercial, but there is at least over the last three, four years, you've seen some significant focus by some of our national agencies and in, in National Science Foundation, for example, has convened a wonderful group to look at this technology and begun to put out some reports that describe the status. And I encourage uh, you and your listeners to uh, look into that. I think it's, uh, it's the other half of the corn of carbon. Yes, you have to reduce carbon emissions, but we already have too much carbon in the air as it is. So, it's not enough just to slow our emissions. We've got to figure out thoughtful ways to pull it out of the air. And as you are probably well aware, the oceans already function as a carbon bank. The oceans have already saved us from greater climatic changes because it is sequestering a great deal of carbon. But, of course, uh, downside there is uh, obviously um, ocean acidification. And there is the reality that as we do reduce emissions and, and carbon concentrations in the atmosphere. The oceans are simply going to release their banks of carbon. So we got to be thoughtful about that as well.
0: Okay. We've been talking about all the promise of all these, you know, offshore energy capabilities, anything that might stand in the way of the progress?
2: Well, certainly uh, a number of things we've already mentioned, uh, the sort of practical issues of transmission. You got to get the generation to load port infrastructure, workforce development, etc. But, you know, it's also people need to keep in mind that when we talk about ocean de- energy development offshore wind development we are talking about ocean space and the oceans are still you know they're busy places and they're used for a lot of different uses including marine transit and of course commercial fishing so even though we're going out you know 20 miles 20 30 miles from shore, somebody fishes there and so as we develop this resource we have to recognize that somebody somewhere is going to going to be impacted by this they're not going to get to fish where they Want to fish and have historically been able to fish, you know, wherever they wanted to, and so we have to be thoughtful about that. Um, we are going to affect these folks, and that—that's why there's been a lot of focus at the, the BOEM level, Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, and the leases that are being let, you know, which are essentially the contract for allowing this project to move forward. It's like, how are you going to provide? the fact that we are going to be impacting someone who has historically used that area. And, you know, there's a variety of ways to deal with this. Uh, First of all, we need to design the facilities as best we can to minimize that impact, but it's never going to be zero, right? It's just the reality of the situation. You can't build a highway or a church without impacting somebody. So just the reality of of energy development. Then the second approach is to uh, mitigate those impacts. In other words, how do we compensate, uh, say, a uh, commercial fishing fleet that historically uses a particular area? And that's where the Bo- I think, Boehm has been very proactive on this, as well as the, in- the offshore wind industry, which we recognize that we are going to have these impacts and we need to come up and be very transparent about coming up with ways to uh, compensate for those impacts. And that has increasingly become, um, you know, an accepted part of the boom lease. You know, luckily, at the end of the day, the upside of offshore wind versus the impacts is a, it's kind of a pretty clear delta there. We're talking about tens of billions of dollars of economic development to do offshore wind projects. You know, a, a gigawatt project is somewhere between three and five billion dollars and it's going to be operating for 20, 30 years. We've already seen from Europe and from the East Coast what these numbers look like and the number of jobs that are going to be created. So we're talking about just thinking about Oregon, for example. If we develop, say, three to five gigawatts of projects over the next couple of decades, we're talking about tens of billions of dollars flowing through the Oregon economy. And yes, we're going to have an impact on some folks. So. Let's make sure that we address that up front, transparently and provide a mechanism to help make them whole while recognizing that you know, sometimes we have to make tough decisions. And it would be wonderful if we could just come up with this new magic energy source that is you naturally know, has no environmental impacts and no impacts on anybody anywhere. Unfortunately, that doesn't exist. And that does raise the other major topic, which is environmental impacts. I'm pleased to say that this is an area that is an organization and individually I've, I've watched for almost 13, 14 years. You often hear that folks say, well, we don't know what this is going to do. The reality is we actually have a pretty solid idea of what it's going to do because it's already doing it. Uh, again, 6,000 turbines in the water in Europe, thousands of miles of cables in the water. And while we have different species and different uh, you know ecosystems in the sense – the way these things function is, is, is common. And so we have been studying this for, for a great deal of time, and we actually started with marine hydrokinetics, the cables, the anchors, the acoustics, the uh, various pieces that are common across both marine hydrokinetics as well as offshore wind. The difference with offshore wind is that you have the bird issue, essentially, which we're well aware that, uh, you know, spinning blades and, and birds don't get along. So, there's uh, a great deal of effort looking into how to, how to minimize those impacts. And there's made a lot of progress from the first days of wind development, we've come a long way to reduce those impacts. It's never going to be zero, it's always unfortunate. Um, but uh, a lot of efforts being put into better understanding this and, and minimizing those impacts. So, uh, certainly some significant challenges. I think it requires leadership, bold leadership, to pick this issue up. It's a significant opportunity and, and it represents significant challenges. And what I think we we do ourselves a disservice as a state, as, as people not uh, treating this as uh, in an open, public, transparent forum where we can discuss these topics openly, sort of dispense with the hyperbole, uh, get to the reality of, of the impacts and the issues and fix them and move forward and address climate.
0: Okay, now I want to just shift gears a bit. You know, we've got the big conference coming up here, starting in a couple of days, the Ocean Energy Week right here in Portland. So what can you tell me about that? I know Poet's, you know, obviously helping put it on. So anything you're looking forward to in particular from all the activities that week?
2: Sure. Well, so uh, Ocean, uh, OREC, uh, Ocean Renewable Energy Conference, now in its, what, 15th year. It's a very popular event with the marine hydrokinetic sector. We've been hosting it in Oregon since the beginning. Uh, this year it's in Portland. It's going to be uh, the 14th and 15th of September. This is looking, this is promising to be our best event yet. We're partnering with a couple of other events. I guess one is called METS and the other is UMERC, Marine Energy Research Coordinating Program. That is a program that POET uh, administers on behalf of the Department of Energy. So between METS and uh, UMERC and OREC, we sort of combined all this. and It's promising to be our biggest event yet. So OREC routinely attracts uh, participants from, of course, wide range of sectors, including the industry, technology development, project developers the, from Department of Energy, the National Labs, university researchers. We have a wonderful contingent coming over from Europe this year. I think it's 11 or 12 members of that group called uh, European Leaders in Blue Economy or Blue Energy. The, the whole event goes for three days. So uh, we're looking forward to it. We got a lot of exciting um, things happening there. I think there were around 65 as part of the UMERC Mets presentations. We have 65 oral presentations and 40 poster sessions representing universities and labs from across the United States. I know that we received a lot more abstracts than we anticipated, which shows a lot of interest. And and, uh, that's wonderful. UMERC is is a new program that uh, is, is administered by Poet and its intent there is to provide a platform to facilitate discussion and, and knowledge transfer and collaboration between universities and, and industries and national labs. So, uh, UMERC is just kind of getting set up, and this is our first major event. Pretty excited about that, and especially to co-locate with, with METS, the Marine Energy Technology Society's annual event. Uh, so we're looking around 250 people, I think, are, are registered at this point. It uh, looks like the numbers are still going up. We still have a couple of weeks before the uh, actual event. And uh, we even got uh, Senator Merkley going to send us a, a, a video this year. Uh, I guess he's got other things going on to keep him busy in D.C. Uh, we're excited to, to feature Senator Merkley's comments supporting uh, marine energy. So it's looking pretty good.
0: Cool. Any? Um, I was digging through the agenda. Any panels or presentations that – caught your eye as being, you know,
2: oh, yeah. cool uh, or
0: high tech or futuristic?
2: You know, uh, some of some of all, yes, uh, pretty excited about several of these. I think one of the things here that is important uh, is a newer angle for us as part of the, the U-Merc event on Wednesday is uh, something called the Community Driven Marine Energy Design and Analysis Panel, which is, I think, reflects a growing emphasis in the, the federal government and certainly in... Uh, states and and, and uh, organizations around the country around community driven efforts instead of this sort of top down imposition uh, is how how do you get communities to see the the value of local generation uh, of sort of owning some of that generation perhaps or at least having a, a say in how it develops and that that's an important piece I think that in the future as we transition from large centralized uh, fossil fuel based infrastructure that was you know located generally without regard to local community input in fact often in, in, in opposition the future we hope will be more community driven so we've got this wonderful panel that's being moderated by dr. Shana Hirsch from the University of Washington uh, with a couple PhD students and several community members from from Washington from tribal communities uh, in Alaska I should have said uh, so that's a that's a pretty exciting panel looking forward to that. At the UMERC event, I know that uh, uh, one of our uh, favorite panels is the opening panel for OREC proper, where we take a, a deep dive into the energy sector in the Northwest. You know, what's what's driving the energy markets here in the, in the Northwest? So we've got our own Shannon Souza, uh, who is going to chair that and bring uh, several key individuals, like uh, Mark Thompson, Commissioner of Public Utility Commission, and Adam Schultz from um, Oregon Department of Energy and Travis DeVille from Pacific Northwest National Lab and the U.S. Department of Energy to talk about what the lay of the land here is in the the West and where are we going, what's going to be the role of uh, marine energy in the future. A key piece of that as we're moving down the the list of some of the exciting panels is the uh, ocean-based climate solutions near and dear to my heart. We've asked uh, Simon Geerlos from Pacific Northwest National Labs to bring some folks together to talk about that. You know, I think as we As a nation, as uh, as a world begin to actually address climate uh, more aggressively, recognizing that imperative, it's exciting to see some of the cutting edge ideas that are out there. We all see the low hanging fruit of replacing coal plants. But once you get beyond that, what are are we doing? And that's where some of the new cutting edge technologies are exciting, whether we're talking about, as I mentioned earlier, marine carbon dioxide removal technologies. The new one, uh, I think, is uh, a lot of people's radar is hydrogen clearly uh, an important part of the energy agenda in the United States and clearly around the world where we're seeing the synergy uh, between uh, large-scale ocean energy development and offshore wind projects in particular paired with hydrogen production as we look to hydrogen to fill important gaps in our energy system, especially you look at Europe today and some of the uh, issues that are being highlighted uh, through the um, unfortunate Ukrainian-Russian situation. Uh, making these energy issues much more critical and, and timely. And if there if there is an upside to that conflict, it is that it may push Europe more quickly toward addressing some of these issues. So I think the hydrogen piece will be uh, very interesting as part of that conversation. So yeah, that's a short list of some of the things we will be looking at in that conference.
0: Sounds great. Uh, I'm going to be there myself. So I'm looking forward to Learning quite a lot. It sounds like a lot of smart people come together, and I'm usually the the dumbest guy in the room. So that'll definitely be the case this time. I
2: doubt that. But (laughs) you will be in a room with a lot of folks who have been leaning into this topic for a long time. So this is the place for the national uh, leadership to come together, as they do every year. And uh, pretty excited, obviously, uh, post-COVID chance to bring people together. It's a very popular event across the board. People love coming to Portland, especially this time of the year. This is a lovely time to be in Oregon. And uh, so people really enjoy coming to the event and you get to see a lot of folks um, that we quite honestly haven't seen in person for way too long. So we're all excited and uh, looking forward to a great event.
0: Great. You know, one thing I like to do on this show is I ask guests for their bold predictions. Right. And this can be anything. there's any kind of, you know, dream you have about the role that, you know, some of these energy technologies will play in our future or, you know, even just a, a yes, no bet on whether, you know, some goal for renewable energy will be hit. Any bold predictions you see out there when you when you think of the next, you know, five or ten years of our future?
2: Well, first of all, I think that's that's a good question. I do have a thought on this. You know, I run a, a nonprofit that's focused on ocean based climate solutions. So I'm motivated to address climate, which I think is the issue, the defining issue of our age. And obviously it's been a frustrating path for those of us who live and, and work in this world over the last couple of decades. And so it's sometimes tough, especially uh, looking at the inactivity or inaction, especially in the United States over the last couple of decades. And it's frustrating to say the least. And it's easy to get maybe pessimistic about our, our future. I do think there's reason to be concerned. I think we are going to suffer because of our inactivity. But it's clear that there is a wonderful coming together of, of people who have made this their life work. And we're seeing the results of that now, the technologies and answering the tough questions. Uh, we are making progress. There is a pathway forward. It is going to be an uphill battle, but at least we can take heart in the fact that we know we have the ability to address it. So I'm pleased, pleased to be a part of that community to a certain extent. I'm, I'm, I'm no scientist, But, you know, that's where the solutions are coming from. Science, they're answering the tough questions. I see a pathway forward. Uh, It all depends on how committed we can remain as a nation. Um, It also shows the importance of politics in our nation, because we saw a very, very big difference between the last administration and this current administration and how we're addressing renewable energy development in in this country. It makes a difference. But I remain positive.
0: I gotcha. Jason, thank you so much for your time. I I really appreciate you kind of sharing all your insights with our listeners and uh, I look forward to seeing you at the conference.
2: Look forward to seeing you, Sean. Thank you so much for the
0: opportunity today. That's our show for today. But before we get out of here, I want to say one final thank you to our sponsor, ABS Quality Evaluations. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and colleagues and be sure to follow us on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at Renewables Pod, and if you'd like a daily dose of renewable news delivered to your inbox, head to SmartBrief.com and sign up for the Renewable Energy Smart Brief. The Renewable Energy Smart Pod is a production of SmartBrief, a Future Company.